it's been to be with you. I love your worship. There's, a, there's just a great spirit among this group of men. It's um, very palatable. It really is. It's um, a great work of God. I'm going to say my goodbyes now because I need to scoot back to town, get ready for tomorrow, so I won't listen to the presentation that's coming when I'm finished. So can I say goodbye and I love you and, and all that good stuff. All right. Tonight's verse, Proverbs 18:21. Life and death are in the power of the tongue. Those who love it will eat its fruit. When I was growing up, there was a little adage, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. I don't know who coined that phrase, but most of us don't buy it for a second. Words are very powerful They're very hurtful. In theory, they shouldn't hurt our flesh. And sticks and stones can hurt our flesh. And in theory, we ought to be able to overlook those who seek to malign us. Nevertheless, words are powerful to create memories, vivid pictures, and impressions that go deep into our skin like splinters. In fact, I suspect if we could have a hurt meter that measured the amount of hurt in this room, the amount of hurt inflicted on you by sticks and stones would be very small, and the amount inflicted by words, maybe from your kids, I hate you, your wife, I never should have married you, and the list goes on and on and on. Proverbs disagrees with that stupid adage, too. Proverbs says, life and death are in the power of the tongue. This verse comes in chapter 18. There are actually nine verses in this chapter alone, and Proverbs has a lot to say about the way you talk. We're just going to limit ourselves to chapter 18, because there's so much, somehow, providentially, in this chapter, there's enough to chew on to challenge our pride to motivate us on to humility in the way we speak, just in this chapter alone. And here's how I want to break it down. I'm going to look at these verses in this chapter under the following categories. Category one, speaking too naively. Too naively, and I'm thinking of verses six and seven. A fool's lips bring strife, and his mouth calls for blows. A fool's mouth is his ruin, and his lips are the snare of his soul. If it's fair to say that none of us seeks to ruin ourselves intentionally, most of us don't like strife, then this is describing a person who is relatively unaware of the power of their words. They don't have a sense for what their words are doing. They are naive about the effect of what they're saying. And that's not a good thing. In fact, strife comes. You know what I think when I think of strife? Remember sledding down a snowy road when you were a kid? And the warmer it got, the more you had to dodge the black patches. Because what would happen when your your sled hit the black patches? It would shh. And you just hated that. That's what 
grace-filled words do. They grate in relationships. They cut down affection. They cut edification off at the knees. And it says, this person's words are a snare to their soul. Isn't it ironic that when we unleash a rash of thoughts, it somehow feels freeing? In reality, God says, when you have unleashed a rash of thoughts, you have created a snare in your soul. In other words, I think, you have, you have done something to your inner psychological being that has kept you from being truly human. Your words have become a snare to you, speaking too naively. So I would ask you, do you know how powerful your words are? Do you know what your words are doing to other people? If you saw in the spiritual realm that your words were doing to people what sticks and stones do to our bones, would you repent? Proverbs 30, verse 14 says this, probably the most stinging picture, radical picture of what words can do. There is a kind, doesn't even call him a man, there is a kind whose teeth are like swords, whose jaw teeth are like knives to devour the afflicted from the earth and the needy from among men. Brothers, what do the afflicted and the needy need? To be chewed up and spit out with knives and swords? No. They need the healing balm of Christ's words. I've only known one person in my life who that description uh, fit, and they were an elder in the PCA church. They fit that description, in my humble judgment. Second category, speaking too much. Verse 2, a fool does not delight in understanding, but only in revealing his own mind. This is a person who, as a sure marker of self-centeredness, feels a need to give a running commentary on everything going on around them, whether or not you're interested. They want to make sure you know his opinion all the time about everything. I witnessed a brutal handling of this years ago, very early on in my ministerial career. Actually, we were in Charlottesville. We were interviewing a, a young man for a pastoral position and there was a very distinguished elderly Christian statesman, pastor, at this interview. And this young man had the gift of gab. And there was a pause in the conversation. And this elderly Christian statesman, pastor man, looked at him and said, you talk too much. <laughs> I, I wanted to crawl under the table and he wasn't even talking at me. Maybe he's a, abrupt too much. I don't know. But this is a person who, according to the verse, doesn't delight in understanding. They're not after gaining a broader perspective on their life. That's why they're called a fool. What's a fool? A fool says, I believe what I want to believe, irrespective of what God says. I'll make up my mind. Only I can determine what makes me happy. That's what a fool is. So they aren't interested in other people's perspective. They live by their own perspective. They talk too much. So we'd ask this person, why don't you wait for people to ask your opinion? rather than seek to impress them with what you have to say. I think when it comes to this, we tend to err in one of two directions. Some of us speak too little. Some of us, if we're going to err, some of us speak too much. 
there really aren't any verses that condemn you for speaking too little. There's one that they probably made that movie being there about. It's the end of one of these Proverbs chapters, and it says, even a fool, when he keeps silent, appears to be a wise person. Remember that movie, Being There, with uh, Shirley MacLaine and Peter Sellers? Yeah, he was this dumb gardener, and he just never said anything, and he would just, and we thought he was so wise because he never said anything. Um, I think we tend to err on those, those two extremes. Proverbs 29, 20 says, Do you see a man hasty in his words? There's more hope for a fool than for him. And if you know anything about Proverbs, the one thing you know about a fool is nobody gets worse than a fool. There's no hope for fools. So a man hasty in his words is worse than a fool. That's the worst thing you could say about a person. So let's ask this question. Why do you speak too much or why do you speak too little? Those of us who may be tempted to speak too little, perhaps it's out of fear. You are afraid people will judge you for your words, your inability to speak. For not being articulate, sorry, <laughs> that you look, <coughs> just a little joke, uh, that you look ignorant or unsophisticated, you are essentially protecting yourself from criticism because you are insecure. Those of us who talk too much, maybe we talk too much because we believe our significance hangs on what we say. We need to impress people with how much we know. We feel the need to exert influence. Why? <coughs> Why do you feel that need? Why is that driving you? Do you have something to prove? Are you compensating for something you lack in your soul with your words? I think in both cases, the answer is there's the absence of the experience of the deep love of God in the soul. And we make it up with words. When you profoundly know how much Christ loves you, Peace settles a kind of contentment and peace, and it's okay. I don't need to prove myself. I am free. I don't need to prove myself. It's okay what people think. The gospel is liberating, and only our experience of the love of Jesus, tasting that he's good, seeing him, having his spirit supernaturally fill our hearts with his love is the only power to free us from misusing our words this way. That's the gospel. Nothing to lose, nothing to prove. It's all been settled. Jesus seals his acceptance of you based on nothing you do, but based on everything he's done. In history, it's accomplished. His acceptance of you is on you, and it's never moving. You're free. Okay, that's the second category. Third category, speaking too ignorantly. If I'm thinking of verse 4 here. The words of a man's mouth are deep waters. The fountain of wisdom is a bubbling brook. Commentators say we're not really sure what's going on in that contrast there. Certainly there's a difference between deep waters, they run very still, and a bubbling brook is going along like this. And in, in biblical imagery, a bubbling brook is a picture of what? Life, vitality, freshness, refreshing. Bubbling brooks are good things. They're always to be referred to stagnant ponds. So we know that that's what wisdom offers us. Something that's nourishing and refreshing and, and light and, and healthful, a cool drink of water to our souls. But what about this words of a man's mouth are deep waters? Generally, deep waters refer to that which is unknown. We don't know what's down there. So I'm going to guess, I'm going to guess at this, that when I say too ignorantly, perhaps this is speaking about someone 
who doesn't really know why they say what they're saying. They're not aware, as other people around them might be, that they're vying for attention by the way they speak. They're defending themselves by the way they speak. They're trying to control by the way they speak. They want to look like an expert by the way they speak. They're flattering by the way they speak. And they're not self-consciously aware of it. I have a relationship with a relative who has a bossy side to him. And he's like in his late, he's like in his 80s. And, you know, we'll be getting up from the table or something. He'll go, well, put your coat on. And I want to say, I am freaking 53 years old. You don't need to tell me to put my coat on. Now, there's a little bit of pride there. <laughs> but I'm like, you are so bossy, it's unfreaking believable. You know, he does get under my skin if he can't tell. <laughs> now, that's just a little. That's my pride. That's my pride. But the reality is this person has no idea of the effect of their words. They're unaware. If you don't learn anything tonight, have the takeaway that Jesus wants you to grow in your self-awareness of the impact of your words and the motivation of why you're using them that way. He wants you to grow in self-awareness. One time Janice and I were sitting on the sofa. We were watching something on TV that didn't mean anything. It was something that some science showed. My wife loves science. And as an act of love to her, I want to enter into her love of science. So I very innocently asked her a question about what was going on TV because I didn't know the answer. And her response to me was felt condescending to me. And because my daughter was sitting there, I said, I'll take this up later. So, I don't know, an hour or two went by and we went out in the car. And I said, honey, do you remember back when we were sitting on the sofa and I asked you that question? And she'd forgotten. And I, I said, and she said, oh, okay, yeah. And I said, I don't know if this is true, but it felt to me like the way you answered me was <laughs> condescending. And since I don't know your motives, I just have to ask you, was it? And was there something I had done or whatever to make you feel like you needed to respond to me that way? And she said, ah, come to think of it, I guess it was. <laughs> She's a very honest woman. And uh, I don't think we discovered that there was any particular way, reason I was irritating her, except probably sometimes I will ask her questions out of laziness, like, where are the scissors? And in defense of her, she could say, you know where the scissors are. They've been there for the last 30 years. Go get them yourself. So sometimes I'm lazy that way. Not. Maybe she heard my question in that genre, so she was a little condescending. But you know what? We worked it out. I didn't come at her with guns a-blazing because I didn't know what her motives were. But if I'm going to have a love affair with this woman, I need to keep our conversation on a very open, understandable, even talk. So that was one of those things. Some things you got to let them roll off and you're never going to touch it again. But if there's things that bother you in the way people interact with you, and you don't let them roll off, but you stuff them, stuff them, stuff them, until finally, we've got to deal with this, then you've got to deal with it. But that's just an illustration of um, my, I was trying to help my wife become self-aware, maybe that she didn't quite have in the way that I was hearing her. Okay? Fourth category. And you, you hear me, that is not to put my wife down. There's no glory in putting my wife down. I would tell the story exactly as I did if she were sitting here. Okay? God is my witness. Speaking too broadly, verse 8, the words of a whisperer are like dainty morsels, and they go down 
into the innermost part of the body. Have you ever noticed when people start to gossip, they lower their voice? As if they are restricting their words. The reality, gossip is taking words much broader than they have any right to go. And I think Christians particularly are susceptible to this because we know that physical injury is wrong and I think we feel uh, um, latitude that we have a right to inflict verbal injury on people because we know we can't do it physically and we allow ourselves looser lips than the scripture would have us. What metaphor do we use for gossip? We call it juicy. Based on this verse, it goes, it tastes like and it goes deep into the soul. So why do we like things like, did you hear about Mike? Do you want to talk about a getting everybody to listen, an E.F. Hutton type statement? Y'all are old enough to remember that commercial? When e. F. Hutton, you ever heard that commercial? When E.F. Hutton speaks, everybody listens. That's the kind of preamble to a sentence. Did you hear about Mike? Everybody wants to know what I'm going to say. Why? Well, when you're let in on my little secret, it makes you feel important. It puts you in a privileged class. It elevates you to the status of a person who knows what other people don't know. And if I can share that with you, you will like me even more for inviting you in to this inner circle of people who know this little juicy piece of gossip. Plus, when we gossip about what's wrong with Mike, I'd never do that. I all of a sudden feel better about myself. Right? I believe the, the ultimate motivation behind gossip is self-righteousness and pride. What should you do with reports about what's wrong with other people? You should do with them exactly what your blood does when foreign substances enter into it. God has designed the body that when something comes into your blood that doesn't, be there, that doesn't belong there, white blood cells immediately surround it. And they keep pressing in on it until it what? Dots. Reports, ill reports about other people should be immediately kept between you and no one else until it dies. We are bound by the law of God in that regard. The ninth commandment requires you to uphold the good name of your neighbor unless you know the facts in the case. It's a matter of the ninth commandment. And I would submit to you that more churches have been hurt in the history of the world by gossip than any single other thing, including heresy. Gossip. We would do much better to help the cause of Christ by specializing in holy gossip. You know what holy gossip is? Did you hear what God did the other day? You know how wonderful Jesus is? God is at work in my life. Can I tell you about it? Holy gossip. Let's start spreading the word about how God is at work. Fifth category, speaking too soon, verse 13. He who gives an answer before he hears, it is folly and shame to him. He who gives an answer before he hears, it is folly and shame to him. Anybody have a wife that says, let me finish. You know why? Because we're interrupting them. We're not letting them finish. I actually don't think that's what this verse is about. 
even though it kind of sounds like it. I think what this verse is about is weighing in on things before you have all the facts. Answering based on assumptions before you know how intelligently to answer. Have you ever called a garage and said, uh, Mr. Mechanic, my car's making noise. I can fix that. Well, sir, I haven't even told you where it is in the car. I can fix that. See, when people are like that, it's all about them, not the truth. I take my car to a mechanic who says, I will look at it so I can find out the truth about what's wrong versus prove before I have any of the facts that I'm capable of fixing. Find, the, find out the facts. It's our pride that fuels wanting to weigh in on things before we know what the facts are. Sixth category, uh, speaking too sparsely, verses 20 and 21. With the fruit of a man's mouth, his stomach will be satisfied. He will be satisfied with the product of his lips. And then again, death and power, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Those who love it will eat its fruit. Here's an analysis of human speaking using eating. Eating as a metaphor. Just as food satisfies the stomach, words have power to satisfy our soul. Just as there's junk food in the real world over on that table, and there's healthy food in the real world. We can be satisfied in our souls with healthy words. We can be temporarily, momentarily nourished, as it were, with junk food words. Let me talk about one category of junk food words I think are tempting for you and I to consume. Criticism. We tend to consume that like chips and candy. So someone has, in fact, objectively erred, objectively erred where you haven't. They've let you down. They, there's, there's a legitimate problem with someone else. What does that mean, really? What does it mean? Where you haven't erred where they have. What does that mean? You know what it ultimately means? You've received more grace than they have, or that would be you. But you don't believe that. Our pride thinks, I'd never do that. I'm really a better person than that. Criticism is fueled by pride. And it is a failure to come to grips with what we really ought to say when we're tempted to put someone down. What we ought to say is, Lord Jesus, the only reason I'm not worse than him is the grace you've given me. To you be the glory. Lord Jesus, give them the grace they lack. That's called praying for your enemies. Lord Jesus, considering all the mercy you've extended to me, I should be a whole lot better than I am. When was the last time we told the Lord that? Given the mercy you have given me, I ought to have been here with all that mercy. Lord Jesus, considering the grace they lack, you're a lot better than they'd be otherwise, or I'd be. When we're motivated to put people down with our words, answer tit for tat, we feel a temporary sense of victim, don't we? We feel victim. Now, if you want to see where this takes place in our culture, it's in the sitcoms. Sitcoms, and I don't watch them very often, and it is only channel surfing, you know, whether it's Friends or these other sitcoms. I don't watch them, so I hardly know the names of them. But the littlest that I've seen, I know that they specialize in not sexual innuendo, but 
bold-faced talk about sex and put down, come back, gotcha, one-upmanship in verbal dialogue. And look, the Hollywood writers are very good at writing this stuff. Why do we need that as our discipline to feel better about ourselves? Does that make me a better person? One-upping you or having the final wisecrack or that pithy comeback? Does that make me smarter or more moral? You know, criticism might make you feel right, but it can never make you happy. It's junk food for the soul, isn't it? And when we aim to argue ad hominem, argue against people, tearing down their character, we're really no different than they are. That's why Paul gives us a beautiful frame as we shoot our words out to other people and about people. In Titus 3.3, he gives you a frame to shoot through. He says, malign no one, be uncontentious, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. So we would do well to speak less, think more, wait, and as we draw back the bows of the things we want to say, and look, I'm, I'm as guilty of this as anything because I have some vehement disagreements with what our government is doing now. I care passionately about the future of my children's future in this government. I think there are, I won't say it, I need to draw back the bow and shoot my words through gentle, uncontentious, no maligning, and showing every consideration for all men. Well, that's a grace that will make us certainly more like Jesus. What about nutritious words as we close here? Nutritious words. Those that edify others. Those that strengthen others. Those that are satisfying to the soul. Whose soul? Yours when you use them, and others when they, others put themselves down. So, uh, Proverbs 16, 24, pleasant words are a honeycomb. To whom? To whom? To you when you use them? To me when I receive them. They're a honeycomb. Proverbs 20, 15, there's gold and an abundance of jewels, but the lips of the righteous are a more precious thing. In other words, you and I have to develop an appetite, a, a hobby of collecting the precious jewels of speaking a right word in a right situation. And when we do, our words review the beauty and the power of Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus spoke many words in his ministry, every one of them without sin. And this verse, life and death are in the power of the tongue, is a most fitting description of the gospel. Think about Jesus Christ and how true that verse is for Jesus. There was power in his words, the power of Almighty God. There was power for death and power for life. When did Jesus use his words for death? In Gethsemane when he said, not my will but yours be done. And he used the power of his word for life on the cross when he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. Life and death were in the power of Jesus' tongue. And that power brings salvation to us. And the verse says, those who love it will eat its fruit. Love what? I guess love the power of those words. 
What is the fruit? What fruit was in Jesus' mind exercising the power of those words? You! You were the fruit he would consume as his own and purchase for himself to be his friend forever. That's why he exercised his words in that way. And when that reality, that glory gets deep in our hearts, we become like him, that fountain of life. Proverbs 10, 11, the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. When you have drunk from that Jesus Christ fountain, you've drunk and it's beginning to uh, nourish and replenish your body, your words will be powerful for life and death. Death to your pride, life to others in humility. Let me pray for us. Like apples of gold and settings of silver is a word spoken in the right circumstance. Jesus By your amazing grace, you have caused our hearts to hear the word of forgiveness. You have caused us to see in you the word of life. You have caused our hearts to desire you more than ourselves. And you have brought us forth by the word of truth, the very word of life. Thank you. Praise you. By that word, be pleased to continue to subdue our pride and the malicious ways we are tempted to speak out of that pride. By your word and grace, promote in us that sweet humility of Jesus Christ so that increasingly we, like you, would be that fountain of life, life-giving words to our children, our spouses, our lost neighbors, our friends, those that serve us, those that we serve. May our words, because of you, the great triumph of your cross, may our words bring utter delight to your heart. For your glory's sake, amen.